two of you, three of you, four of you, Deb, you, I know you know what that is. It's sermon prep, how to put a sermon together, what a sermon prep look like. I took that. I know you're shocked by that, but I actually took it in college and seminary, and basically most sermons, they tell you, ought to be along the lines of this, a great opening where you cast their attention, you captivate them for the moment, call the hook or whatever you want to describe it in, but everybody is caught in that moment, and they just want to hang on every word, and then there's usually three points in a poem, you know, and it thread all the way through it of one particular point and the other, and then you know when they're winding down. How many of you have been in a sermon where you just know, just by his voice inflection or whatever, the sermon is about to end? He's kind of landing the plane. You can read it. How many of you have been surprised when the plane takes off again? You think, certainly this sermon's going to end. There he went again and took off. We had a thing in our, our senior staff a quite a while ago now, when someone would go too long, we would just go like this, you know. Didn't say a word, just land the plane and be done. I flew one time in, from uh, New York, I think. I was headed to Countersport. We had no airport port in Countersport, but closest with Bradford, PA. Y'all know Bradford, PA is the coldest spot in the state of Pennsylvania, right? This is the winter. We're flying into Bradford. The pilot comes on the air saying, does anybody see the airport? <laughs> now, I'm thinking that's your job. But he's asking us to look out the window to see if we see the airport. <laughs> and we're, no. Well, I'd like to try to land. We're thinking, that'd be great. And you know he's going down, and then all of a sudden you hear the engine kick back up again. You see the nose lift up, and you know you're taking off again. And he says, well, I'm going to try this one more time. I'm saying, just try it till you get it right, pal. I want to try it one more time. And he goes around and says, the same thing. Anybody see the airport? And I'm going, oh, Jesus, please. I love my kids, I love my wife, I don't want to go home yet. I know where I'm going, but I'm not ready yet. And then he asks us the third time, has anybody seen the airport yet? By this time, I've already identified myself as a pastor, I've already had a collection, we've taken an offering, <laughs> and I'm ready for the invitation right now. And the third time he goes down, and then we're just all praying, and he goes back up again. I'd love to know, how, Indy, how you're doing this one. He goes back <laughs> back up again and he said we're not going to make it and I'm going oh lord what does that mean he said we're going to have to go to Jamestown New York now my car is in Bradford so I'm nervous about that land in Jamestown and have to try to figure out how to get home now I'm sure you're wondering where's that illustration going I'm just giving you the description of landing and taking off it doesn't mean anything <laughs> when I put a message together that's usually what I do try to do that's something that grabs your attention Threads that go all the way through it, and we will this morning, and then an ending that has life application to us. Every once in a while, I feel like on a Sunday morning, I just want to talk to you. I just want to share with you what's going on, where we're at, what God's doing, and what you can do as a part of that. And this morning and next Sunday is that. It won't be the typical homiletical sermon where you have that opening catch and those three points and a poem and a landing, but I do want to talk to you and share with you. When I look for messages, there are a lot of pastors that'll do thematic messages where they'll put a message together and they'll look for scripture to support it. And others will look at a certain segment of scripture or books of the Bible and look at all the themes that come out of that. And if you've been with me for the last 10 or 12 years, that's what I've done. I love what we have been doing in Peter. Peter has given us an amazing platform to talk about suffering holiness, life in the marketplace, my place in God's plan, marriage, great words to the husband, great words to the wife. I had one of the Christian counselors call me the other day and said, boy, the sermons you're doing on marriage, I've had counseling load 
extension this week of all the people that are coming. So I, I'm hoping you're taking them and using them to heart. Before we get to the end of 2 Peter, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare, our spiritual development, false teachers, the second coming, and the end of the world. That's a pretty good segment of Scripture. Now, again, I, I read somewhere yesterday that the world's going to end again uh, by December 21st, 2012. Did you all see that one? I forget what it's called. But if we're still here in January, if not, I'll see you there. But if we're still here, we're going to speak on that subject at the beginning of the year. The last few weeks, I have said in a bulletin that we're going to do a baptism service. And when I looked at this section in Peter, when he addresses that issue, he talks about it in a very unusual way. And I felt like I really needed a, a broader platform to talk to you about baptism. It is one of the most important steps and statements you'll ever make in your spiritual journey. And I don't know that everyone understands that or has taken advantage of that. So I, I'm pushing it away. It's been in your bulletin for the last number of weeks. I'm pushing it into January or February. And we'll talk about it very specifically then and really give the opportunity for a lot of people to take that next incredibly important step in their spiritual journey. So if you've been a part of that, we hopefully got a hold of most of you. But if you've thought about it, we're going to talk about it very specifically in a message and then give you the opportunity to demonstrate that next step probably in January, but most likely in February. This morning, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to talk to you about leadership. If you listened to me on phone tree yesterday or saw the title in your bulletin this morning, you saw the position and priorities of leadership. I want to finish Peter for now and set it aside for a few weeks over a Christmas celebration with this section of Scripture that will lead us into next Sunday and you'll understand why as I finish the message. 1 Peter chapter 5, the first five verses. Remember, when I'm sharing this, I want you to think of it in a broader context of leadership, not just for pastors. He's going to use the word elders, and I get that. But back up a little bit and think of it if I'm leading an organization, if I'm leading a, a, a business, if I'm leading my family, if I'm leading a team. A lot of these principles will apply in any context of leadership. So often we think of it within this context because we see the word elder, or if I talk about leadership, somebody out there that's leading or running an organization. You have the opportunity to lead a family, to lead your, your private sector business, whatever that may be, or a public business, or to lead a community group or a community involvement. Listen to these principles. To those in leadership among you, in this case to the elders, I appeal to you as a fellow elder or leader and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you have to or must, but because you really want to, you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit to the elders, and then all of you, clothe yourself with one great quality, humility, as you minister to one another, because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor on the humble. If I were to ask you about a church this morning, and ask you who leads a church or who leads this church or how a church should be led, i got to believe that we would have a variety of answers and I'm sure a variety of opinions. If I were to ask you to help me define leadership, again, I believe that a lot of us would say different things. I listed just simply a list of them this morning in the first sermon. One book says leadership is the ultimate relationship between those you aspire to lead and those who choose to follow. Bill Hybels in his book said leaders see the big picture. And they understand how to help others find their place of service within that picture. Bobby Clinton says influence is leadership. 
Influencing God's people toward God's purposes. And Henry Blackaby said, spiritual leadership is moving people onto God's agenda. Warren Bennett said there are over 850 different definitions of leadership. So how do you determine which one's the best? Which one's the right one? There are different leadership styles. Again, whether you're business, organization, or home. There's a supportive leader who makes sure that they're just a a family-friendly environment. The directive leader who tells everyone what they need to do and helps them understand what to expect. The participative leader who consults with everyone. The achievement-oriented leader who's more concerned with goals and improvements, performance, and results. The vision leader who is more concerned with inspiration. The coach who integrates them in a team. The democratic leader who's all about building consensus. The affiliated leader who's all about having a good time. The pace setter leader who's extremely effective themselves and expect others to be like them, they have a tendency to notice more what you do wrong than what you do right. How many of you had a parent like that? Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you parent like that. But if you've had a parent like that, you know how frustrating it can be sometimes when they only seem to notice what you've done wrong and not what you've done right. And you know what that's like in the business world, the organizational world that you find yourself in when it seems like no matter what I do, it's never enough. And people are never happy and they're never pleased. And they always seem to notice what I've done wrong as opposed to what I've done right. Coaches do that as well as, well, certainly a lot of parents. And then there's finally the command and control leader. He's the one that really takes charge. He's great in a crisis, but tends to leave people and body bags laying along the way. Every one of them had their place. Great leaders know how to use which ones in given situations. There are different leadership styles in a church and different denominations, even in different sizes of churches. If you come from a smaller church, it's usually a pastor or a board or a session who makes the decisions. Larger churches, the more paid staff it employs, the more difficult it does for that way, and thereby the staff ends up making a lot of decisions. Many churches function with a senior pastor as a dominant leader, others with a board that runs it all, and some even with congregation that make all the decisions and recommendations. Some view the church as a representative type of government. Similar to our national government, where certain leaders, in a church case, it's usually the elders, they represent a certain segment or a certain issue or a certain thing the church body would like to be addressed, and they bring that to the need of the people around them. It can work, but in many cases, it often alienates and keeps the church more issue directed on issues than on accomplishing the ultimate mission, which is making disciples and growing them up in faith, according to Matthew chapter 28. I want to be honest with you, the church was never established to be a democratic representative form of government. And to be really honest, as broken and as divided as our nation's government is, would you really want to fashion a church after that model? What you'll find all the way through Scripture from the beginning to end is that leaders lead. Whether you're leading a home, a business, an organization, leaders lead and they know what that means and they know what it entails. You go all the way back to the beginning of time and if you're going to look at an issue, you ought to Go back as far as you can in Scripture and see how it's addressed all the way through. You find the story in Exodus 18, and if you want to take out this board of advisors profile and jot some notes down at the back of that, I'll talk about this at the beginning, but I want to give you some great foundations for it all the way through Scripture. Moses finds himself overwhelmed by the needs of the people, and his father-in-law shows up one day and says, What are you doing? These people are standing here all day long. You're trying to do everything you can from morning to night. They're always there, and you think everything has to be done through you. He said, to be honest with you, you're going to wear yourself out and the people. I've been there. He said, this is my advice. You decide what your priorities are. You need to be the representative before God, and 
before the people. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way they are to live and how to believe. Select other men who fear God, trustworthy, who really don't like dishonest gain, which I find fascinating with Peter. And you let them take charge over certain responsibilities. Moses listened to that advice and it worked. You begin following Scripture all the way through and you find from Moses to Joshua the same thread where leaders lead. You move from judges to priests and prophets and kings and you'll still see that same thing where leaders take the responsibility and lead well. You will also find a very undeniable pattern in the Old Testament and that is this, as goes the leader, so goes the people. And you know what that means for all of us in leadership, whether it be a dad or a coach or a business organization leader? As goes the leader, so goes the people. You walk all the way through the Old Testament. You'll be amazed at the fact that when the leader was following God, the people followed God. When the leader went away from God, the people went away from God. Puts an enormous amount of weight on us as dads because we have such a huge influence on the home. And you've seen all the stats. I've given them to you before in family sermons, but 70 to 75%, I think of it is, of the kids who grew up with a faithful dad will end up being faithful themselves. And that puts a weight on us that ought to be there because it talks all the way through Scripture about our responsibilities as a dad. But you as a leader, whether it's a coach or a business leader, have an enormous amount of influence on the environment around you and the people that serve with you or beside you. The New Testament, you find the apostles leading and then ultimately it's placed into the hand of elders that Paul refers to and Peter as well, of leading and shepherding a local body of believers. In every case, whether it be Acts 6 or Acts 15 that you can write down there and Look up later, you'll find out when the problem arose, the leaders gathered themselves together, decided what was most important, what their responsibility was, and what they could hand off to others, and they do that. And in that case, in Acts chapter 6, is when the first group of deacons were formed. So important was the role and function that Paul listed their qualifications in Timothy and Titus, and Peter addressed their priorities in 1 Peter chapter 5. Paul said if you're going to choose a leader, especially in a church, they ought to be honest, faithful, hospitable, self-controlled, a great example at home and in the community. It ought to be the same person that you see on Sunday that your kids see on Monday. Be the same person that you see on Sunday that your business people see on Monday to Friday. And you ought to have a solid, growing, consistently learning posture. Last elders meeting in November, we did something that I've never done before and I don't think it's been done here before at Community Alliance Church, but we named Vic Brown as Elder Emeritus which will mean he will always carry the title of elder. He doesn't have to come to all the meetings or the functions, but he will always retain that title until he decides to give it up or God calls him home. What I love about Vic, good. First service must not have known him. What I love about Vic at 83 years old, he's always learning, always growing, always developing, and you love that in people. Not when they're never satisfied. I don't mean that kind of always growing, but just constantly on a learning edge. And that's what Peter and Paul both say we ought to be. Here in this context, now you're in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter said they really need to be people who care. The Greek word for shepherd that he used when he talks about shepherding the people is one who tends and one who cares and one who feeds. I began to think about this even in the first service this morning when Peter was writing this. And I've often wondered when I look at New Testament authors, what was going through their head as they're beginning to listen to the voice of the Spirit and write down the Word of God? 
And Peter is writing this qualification as to what it's like to be a leader and what it's like to be a shepherd. And i got to believe in the back of his mind, he remembers what it was like in John 21, sitting around that fire after jumping out of the boat and recognizing that Jesus really was the one standing there, had really risen from the dead. He runs up and he greets him. Peter was the one who said, Lord, I'll stand with you no matter what. I'll be by your side. Uh, and he was in that intimate circle. Jesus had 70-some disciples, depending on what translation you read, and 12 that we all know names of, and three that were on the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And, of course, you all know John, the one who identified himself as what? Jesus' favorite. <laughs> I love that. I'm the one who Jesus loved. He called himself that three times, I think. And then all of a sudden, Peter, as he read that word, shepherd, he probably in the back of his mind had to remember Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? What I love about that interaction in John 21 is that Jesus doesn't say, what were you thinking? Do you remember the promise you made? You'd never leave me. You'd always be there for me. You would fight for me. You would always be by my side. Others may walk away. You never would. He never does any of that. He just simply looks at Peter in the midst of that context and said, do you love me? Peter said, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. Do you really love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I do. Then tend my sheep. And then the third time. And of course, in my mind, I've always wondered what went through Peter's mind when he heard that same question asked the third time. All theologians will tell you different things, and many will say it was because he denied him three times and probably in the back of his mind heard that, and I don't know, to be honest with you. None of us were there. The word doesn't exactly say third time he said do you really love me Peter said Lord you know I do then you feed my sheep how awesome is that of Jesus not to remind him of his failures not to go back and look at it again but just simply say from this point on this is what I want you to do I gotta believe that tears were flowing down Peter's face when he wrote this as a leader I want to feed my sheep as a leader as a pastor, as an organizational leader, as a dad, care for those under your care and make sure they're nourished and nourished well. It does infer care and concern. It also infers seeing them individually and not just as a flock. One of the most unique traits of a shepherd in this analogy and one of the things that Jesus was a master at, that he was able to see beyond the masses to the individual. Thousands of people gathered to hear Jesus speak, but he always saw the individual. So many people in this context, especially in a large church, have a tendency to only see the mass and forget the needs of the individual. One of the things that I always say to people coming into membership here, it's difficult sometimes being in a large church because we may not know where you're at if you've gone from week to week and you're not there. Now, a lot of you are creatures of habit. Bill always sits in the same spot. So does Jody. And, and the list is endless as I look around and I, I know where you sit and I know where you'll be and I can look at you and you guys usually are always in the same section and so is Brad and Tim and the list is endless. Craig almost always sits there. The ciphers always sit in the same row and so I'll know where you're at most of the time. But every once in a while you'll throw me off and sit in a different section and I, I may not know and that's one of the reasons we encourage you to get into a small group to get connected. But I love the fact that when he uses the term really care for people is that we get beyond just seeing the mass of humanity and seeing people and recognizing their needs and their circumstances. 
It also infers protection. He said, seeing as an, serving as an overseer infers giving direction. The flock won't always know the best routes to take, and they need to be led well, which is the beautiful model of Psalm 23 that has to be in also the back of Peter's mind when he's writing this. So the first thing he said is feed the flock, lead the flock. Second thing he says, do it for the right reasons, for the right motives. Not because you have to or because of what you'll get, because you really want to control somebody or have your way. Do it for the right reasons, whatever that may be. Not a whole lot of people go into ministry for the money, but they do go into it sometimes for a lot of the wrong reasons. The need to be needed, the desire to showcase their talents, the praise and affirmation of people, the motivation of getting their agenda done. There's a lot of other reasons. There are a lot of people that go into business for that reason. More concerned for the bottom line and their vantage point than the organization. How many of you have just been appalled by the fact that a business or an organization can go under literally and the CEOs walk away with millions? And you wonder, what was their motivation to begin with? And were they more concerned for themselves or for the organization? Peter said, be way more concerned for the organization or the group than what you will gain out of it. Peter and Paul both say you need to have the right qualifications, but he says you need to go into it for the right reasons. A lot of people in the political realm go into it all the time because they want a certain agenda done as opposed to the desire to serve. We've all seen it in churches where people get into leadership to straighten the pastor out or get a certain ministry started as opposed to really doing it because they really want to care and they really want to serve. Peter also reminds them how to lead, just a classic example by example. Whether you're a coach or a leading your family or a business organization, what people look for out of you, just let me tell you, is an example. Not intimidation, not domination, not lecture. You want to lead, inspire, don't intimidate. You want to motivate, challenge, don't dominate or try to control. We see it all the time, and I'm sure you have as well, especially with a coach who just absolutely dominates and intimidates and puts down instead of lifting up, trying to control or get a certain thing across. And my encouragement to you, whatever level that may be, you want to lead, inspire. You want to motivate, lift up, don't put down. Don't dominate or intimidate, but encourage and lift up. Doesn't mean leaders have to be perfect, not at all. Peter and Paul are always honest about their weaknesses and their failures, but they're willing to be models and examples. And they also know that their leadership is pushing them toward a future day. Because look how he finishes in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. And what he's ultimately reminded of here is, is, again, an amazing day, but he's also reminded that I will stand before God as to how I've led, whether it be here, whether it be a group, whether it be in my family or my organization as a believer in Christ, I will stand before God. And I want to do that well. So Peter encourages us more and finishes in verse 5 saying, I just want to be really honest with you. Use humility instead of arrogance. and be a whole lot further and God will... Get the glory, and he'll take you where you need to go, and he'll elevate you at the right time. Reminds us here of accountability and perspective and a desire to finish well. See, the issue isn't always how you started. Just ask Peter and Paul. You'll find that out. But the issue is always how you finish and where you are now as opposed to going backwards all the time, moving forwards. For years in our church, we were led by a governing board made up of representatives from various boards. And a number of years ago, the CMA went to a, 
uh, a more biblical model out of this section of Scripture that we're in and a couple of others and say that the pastor and the elder board serve as the highest level of servant authority. And you see that in my report when I write it for you every year. What I love about this is they constantly, continually encourage the word servant so that we always understand the posture from which we lead. Small churches and large churches have to determine how it best fits, but they're vastly different. I've got an article because there was no way I could give you everything from it this morning, so I actually ran a number of them off and some took it after the first service. It is the best article I've ever read in my life on the difference between a small church and a large church. Because a lot of us have come from various backgrounds. Some of us grew up in a church of 100, which is 75% of the churches in North America. Others of us are used to a large church. But they are vastly different from one to the other. One writer says if you go to a church of 400 and a church of 1,500, it's like you shifted denominations. It's that big of a difference. Tim Keller, who is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, wrote and defined the differences between them all in better ways than I could ever give you. And so I have those there this morning. Please feel free to take one. If you didn't get one, I don't. I'll have it sent to you. But he says you need to understand that it really isn't a matter of a larger church being a larger version of a smaller church so drastically different from one another. What we have to be careful of is that sometimes we say one is better than the other. I've heard large churches sometimes victimized as saying, well, they just attract a great crowd. They're a mile wide and an inch deep and really have no depth. And that's not always true. But they are vastly different from one another. The large church has at times a definite challenge of finding out where everyone is at. And a smaller church can often give outspoken and opinionated people more power than they need. In a small church, leaders are selected for their tenure, medium-sized church for their skills and maturity, and a large church because of their commitment to a vision. These people that are here on that list that we've had for you over the last few weeks are people that we really believe are committed to where CAC is at and where it's going, who are committed to us and the vision that God has placed before us. And we're going to ask you next Sunday morning to do something that we have never done before here in my tenure of 17 years at Community Alliance Church, and we're going to have a congregational meeting next Sunday morning. Never done one before. Last year when we talked about the differences between the board, the elder board who deals primarily with staff and vision and the board of advisors who deal with facilities and finance and talked about the differences of the two, we shared that with 100 people. And those who came are the ones who passed a $1.8 million budget and voted into people in leadership and approved all our reports and heard our testimonies as to what God is doing and what God has done. And and, and we all went home and I thought, you know, I love being a part of this church. And I want everybody to know how exciting it is to be a part of the family of God at Community Alliance Church. And so next year, this is what I thought months ago, next year on a Sunday morning, depending on where we are in our series, and it just happens to be that we're on leadership, depending on where we are, I'd love for that senior staff to take four or five minutes apiece and just say to, to our church family, God has been doing some amazing things. I'm excited about the lives that are being changed. I'm excited about where we are. I'm excited about the future. Do you realize that over 3,000 churches close their doors in the United States of America every single year? Close their doors. Hundreds of them are plateaued or declining. 75% of the churches in North America are 100 people. Hundreds and hundreds of churches haven't added one convert or one new member in years. Do you realize how blessed we are? Not because of us at all. But we're just blessed by God. And we want to celebrate that. And so next Sunday, we're actually going to do that. I hope you love it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you're sending emails saying it's the greatest thing you've ever seen me do. No. I just want you to join with us in sharing what God has done. 
and how exciting it is to be a part of a family of God that seeing God do some wonderful things, of people coming to faith in Christ, of growing in their faith in Christ, of seeing the transformation that's taking place, of being intentional in their relationships and their ministry and their service. It's just a, a lot of wonderful things God is doing here. And we feel, at least I feel, that all of you ought to know that and be excited with us. There'll be a ballot next Sunday's bulletin. You'll check it. You'll circle. There's the Board of Advisors, the only one we're actually voting on. The other people are, are automatically in because there's no limit to the number. And, and you'll vote. You'll circle and you'll check member and we'll put it in a box and we'll go home and, and all that. This Wednesday night, December the 5th, any of you have any questions as to how our budget is put together, we won't give you all the, can't give all the details, but we'll, how it's formed, how it's put together. This Wednesday night, December the 5th, at 7 o'clock, I'll answer questions that you may have on the reports. Bob will in regards to how the budget is put together. And we'll do that next Sunday morning. We won't talk about money. We'll talk about ministry and how blessed we are and what God's doing. And we'd love to have you here to be a part of that. When I thought communion this morning, and I recognized that we were celebrating communion today, I thought, what a great day. Because you and I are a part of the family of God because of what represented under these covers here this morning. Scripture very clearly tells us that God so loved this world that he gave his life. He offers it freely to everyone. Not one person is left out. It's offered to all. There's no chosen race and chosen few. Everyone is invited into the kingdom of God, but not everyone receives the invitation. It's open to all, but all aren't open to taking it. But those who do, who receive Jesus Christ as Savior, who recognize that he really is the answer to life, he's the only way to heaven, they invite him into their life, they confess their sins, and they allow Christ to take over, and they give their life to him, they're a part of the church. You're a part of the family of God. The beauty of that is that you are the bride of Christ. And when the world does end and Christ comes to take the redeemed home, it won't be your CAC card that you're handing out so that he knows you're a part of this church. It will be a part of the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And you'll spend all eternity with God. But the only way in is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross and what he's offering to us all. And he said, it's yours. Take it, receive it. And so this morning, what I'd love for you to do is when you take the elements in your hand, just say, God, thank you. You gave your life so that I can be a part of your family. You gave your life so that I could be a part of the church. The church that you're someday going to take to yourself. And no matter what kind of different theologies out there, you may hear that universalism, we're all going to heaven, give it your best shot. It's not true. The only way to heaven is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. What I love about that is that offer is to everyone. And if you've taken advantage of that this morning, man, share communion. Because it's a reminder of the price that was paid so that you can be in the family of God. We sit in a beautiful building and a lot of people have sacrificed a, a lot so that we can enjoy the ministries and the beauty of this place. But pales in comparison. Shouldn't even be mentioned in the same paragraph with the price that Jesus paid so that you and I can be a part of the family of God. The other thing I'd love for you to consider and that is this. You know, I got a friend. I got a family member. I got a business associate that's lost. And man, I'd love to spend all eternity with them. I'd love for them to find the Jesus that I have found and be a part of the church, whether this church or another one, but to find the Jesus that I have found. 
And maybe during that time together, as you thank the Lord for the fact that you're in the family of God and you're in the church of Jesus Christ and have been enormously blessed, maybe he'll remind you of somebody else that you'd love to see in the family of God to find out what you have found in him. And so if he brings that to your mind, pray for that person this morning. I'm going to ask the communion stores to come. They're going to come and serve you all over this place. We're going to ask you to wait till everyone is served and I'll lead you at the end. Help the person beside you if uh, you can because everything is in one tray if you're a visitor with us this morning. Make sure that everyone is able to participate. Just spend some time listening to a beautiful song and spending some time with God, thanking Him for being in the family of God and allowing you to be where you are today because of Him. Beyond the first two rows, I guess, is a place to put the cup. And if you're visiting this morning, I want to make sure you see that. These men will help you. I love being a part of this family, and I hope you do as well. And that you'll join us next Sunday morning as we share together what God is doing. This Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, 10 minutes after you leave this building, for those of you who have children in Upstreet, please get them. Share together. Go into our family theater and find out the virtue of the month. Just some great things that you can learn together as a family and grow in that relationship love to see you there and a part of that for those again you want any of these reports or any of this information that i talked about this morning whole stack of them over here take one home and read it god bless you thank you for your kind attention hope you have an incredible day